0: And welcome to the Three Lions podcast. My name is Russell Osborne, and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. Regular listeners of the show, well, you may remember a couple of previous episodes where I focused in on former England managers, namely Sir Walter Winterbottom and Sir Alf Ramsey. And I spoke with biographers for each of those, Walter Winterbottom's son-in-law, Graham Morse, and Dave Bowler for Ramsey's. And the aim is to try and go through each manager chronologically. Now, I'm sure many of you will know that after Ramsey came Joe Mercer, but that was only in caretaker capacity, and I think we're going to look at caretakers another time. But basically, after Alf Ramsey came Don Revy in 1974, an interesting character, to say the least. And I'm pleased to say i have joined by Christopher Evans, who has recently written the book Don Revy, The Biography. It is released through Broomsbury Sports Books. Christopher, hello there. How are you? Okay. Oh, I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? Very good. Yeah, very good. Very good. Now, one thing I ought to say is, through doing this podcast, I've always said, never mix football and politics. <laughs> and uh, I've broken that rule now. Just just introduce yourself um, and explain how that fits in.
1: I am well, I'm Chris Evans, and since 2010, I've been the Member of Parliament for Islay in South Wales, and I'm also the Shadow Defence Procurement Minister. So that's my political bit then so we will go into the sport now and again I promise I won't give any
0: politician type answers well I'll try not
1: to try and break the habit of a lifetime.
0: (laughs) The book is Don Revy the biography I'm going to point this out now you're Welsh how has this all come about? (laughs) (laughs) To be honest
1: where it comes from really is um, where I grew up in South Wales which is miles away from um, any of the big cities you know I grew up in a place called the Rhonda Valleys the only teams on television were Manchester United and Liverpool during the 1980s. And I mean, to the point where we were in street gangs where you were either Liverpool or you were Man United. And we would try and, you know, one gang would try and convert another one into Liverpool or Man United. And to be honest with you, they were on television all the time. And I found it, you know, same. I wanted something a bit different. And I always remember following the 87 um, FA Cup. And if I remember, I think... Manchester United went to Man City very early on in the fourth round or something, and suddenly it wasn't going to be a Man United Liverpool final. They weren't even near the finals. I think it was Tottenham reached the final year against Coventry, and I think one one semi final was Tottenham versus Watford, but the other one was Leeds United versus Coventry City. And I always remember on ITV there was a montage of showing the great days of Leeds. So the first night ever, ever heard T Rex, which is you know. I'm a secret fan of T Mart and T-Rex and that glam rock era. I was the first time ever you'd get it on. And I was member that, that that beat, you know, get it on, bang and gong. And there was this team in pristine white. And I love the old, you know, fell in love with the old football shirts at that point, you know, all in white, no sponsors name, just the old LUSC down the side. And there they were playing Manchester United with the, the fabled, you know, Charlton best and low in the side. And they, would, they were asked, they were in them to try and take the ball off them because they were so good. And then you had Billy Bremner lifting the 1972 FA Cup. And then this man, Don reevey they said, you know, Don reevey lifting the 1970 World League Championship. And then Billy Bremner was the manager of, of Leeds at that time. And he took always been the boss. He'd always been the godfather. He was the dominant person in my life. And I was just really fascinated by how this guy had become so dominant, these players. Five years later, then Leeds beat Manchester United for the tightman, Howard Wilkinson. And I remember every newspaper starting with dirty Leeds, disgraced Don Reilly. And then I, you know, and this wasn't coming from, you know, anybody serious, shall we say, We talked about football in the Garth Crooks or the Guy Linekers. Mm. This was coming from Jimmy Greaves. This was coming from Emily Hughes. The people I thought was comedians. I didn't really, you know. I started watching football in the 80s. I do not remember these players. All I remember them was, was being quite funny. St. Greaves on a, a Saturday oh, lunchtime. Emily was on Question of Sport. Very funny. i always laughing. You know, much, particularly Emily Hughes. how much he hated Don. He was money ruled. You know, he's obsessed by many Don Reddies. He was up to all sorts. And I couldn't understand where his comedic figure suddenly turned on this man to the point, you know, I knew nothing about Revy at that point. I was six, 15, 16. I just loved football but genuinely thought he committed a crime. I thought he'd done something so serious. He was, the, you know, the the name you dare not mention. And what was funny recently, you know, during mm-hmm. lockdown, ITV started showing um, big games again. The, the 87 Cup, I was interested. Yeah. Yeah. In but the 1989 title decided was in there. And Don Reedy really died that night. And usually it says, oh, it's a sad day for football. We've lost so-and-so. There was no mention of Don Reedy really through that game. And I was very interested how, in 1974, my research, what I would say in 1974, had he died in 1974, left for, you know, the Armour Emirates in 1974, people would said, Don's a pioneer. He's the forefront of football. He's now selling football to Dubai, you know? But by 1977, he is an absolute pariah. To the point, the had went after him in a witch hunt, Daily Mail, Mirror, make it a, a, just digging it out anybody, Gary Spray. Bob or just to say something about this guy fixing matches or, 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 or throwing matches or whatever you want to say. they You know you even had a, an incident, which was in the book, where it said Don Revy appears in the crowds for, crowd for Leeds versus Middlesbrough. Of course, he's going to be there. He managed Leeds and he's from Middlesbrough. Of course, he's going to watch the two matches. On the Monday morning, the FA sent a letter to the 92 clubs. Do not think of employing Don Revy because he has been banned from any football activity in this country for 10 years. So, the restraint is not only just banned him as well for just leaving a job he didn't like, they also restrained the trade as well. They restrained him from doing the job that he, was, that he was most qualified to do. So, what I got very interested in is how he became a mystery man and how he arrived at that stage. And I think um, I think history, I think his contemporaries weren't fair to him. And I think usually history uh, sorts, sorts those matters out. You know, I think they always say history treats you better than your contemporaries. But unfortunately, history is not treat him that way as well. A lot of his allegations are completely unfounded without fact and he and he's and he's still reported as fact. And that's really why why are the fascination
0: for Don Revy come from in a long-winded way. <laughs> well, I mean, from my own personal opinion or perspective, when someone says the name Don Revy to me, immediately I think of, as you say, dirty leads. Um, and then it's the England job. Uh and then there was this Dubai UAE sort of era that i didn't really know a great deal about to be honest and the book goes through it all it's a great book um and it, i've rattled for it it's, it's really easy to read but i think let's start at sort of the beginning because he, he was a player as as well but i think even from his sort of personality that people saw later on probably came from his sort of tough childhood and and he lost his mother early and. And, and the environment he grew up in, I, th- I think losing his mother was the
1: biggest yeah, had the biggest effect on his life. He lost his mother at eleven, and I think I say in the book as well. There, there's there's an example there of going to school early because his father had to go to work. His twin sisters had to go to work. He would just kick the ball with tears rolling down his eyes because he missed her so much. And I think this gave him a sense of insecurity. And I think before his mother died as well. I mean, his father worked for two years, and they would they would he was trying to feed a family of of five on 24 pence. You know, there's there's um, instances of his mother having to take washing in from the, the posher parts of Middlesbrough as well, where he ha- he actually had to help out and do the laundry for these more affluent families. He says, you know, he walked, they walked to Middlesbrough town centre um, at the end of the day on a Saturday to get the scrag ends of the meat, the, the, the soup, so they had some meat that week. You know, there's, there's instances of his father having to just find sticks to put on the fire. It just feels that there's a lot of there was a lot of hardship to add into that as well. I always say this, you know, if you look where the old Aesham Park is, it backs onto the Holgate wall, as they call it. And on beyond that wall was the workhouse, which there are some instances in the book of some horrendous things happening there, which would really cast a shadow over where Review was from in Bell Street as well. That then became um, the sort of employee, the labour exchange where people had to go there to see if they could qualify for benefits. His father had to go through that and it was quite humiliating as well. And then his mother died there. So I always say ASM Park was his place for his dreams, but also beyond it was his nightmares. And I think this is where the insecurity come from. I mean, his instances of him becoming very superstitious at this point in his life. He drops to his knees every night and he prays to God as well. He also says in the book as well, he has this belief that there's always a pitfall around the corner. And I think that goes into his career as well. He goes into the one, you know, football at that point is really insecure. You know, he has to work as an apprentice builder just in case he doesn't make it. And he's working all day and then training at night as well. You know, He breaks into the Leicester team at uh, 21, smashes his leg in three places. They say to him, there's a 1,001 chance he was re- returning from this, Don. And his manager, shut Jockey Duncan, says to so him, he's got to be that one in 1,000 man, Don. And he was. But then he reaches the cup final and looks like, oh, he's turned around. A couple of weeks before, he gets into a challenge with, with a West Ham defender, takes an elbow on the nose, breaks his nose and keeps hemorrhages. It keeps him up the 1949 FA Cup final.
0: He was on his deathbed, wasn't he? Yeah, he nearly died. Yeah, they put him in a
1: taxi and he, kept, he went to the Plymouth and uh, they played Plymouth Argyle and he was put in a taxi and he nearly died because he bled so much all the way back to the Leicester Infirmary. Yeah, if they, they half and else he actually said half his wife said half an hour later and he'd have been dead. So you so see how serious that was, um, you know. And I think he always had this feeling about him that something was going to go wrong, but then he felt, and I think it's where the superstition comes from, he felt. Now one thing he can't control is that chance that we all live by. Something can go wrong anytime. You all know that, right? You know? Yeah. But he's trying to eliminate that by being superstitious. You know, Johnny Giles said got a great story. He told me he just went in the boss's room and he paid a new boots he put him on the desk. And Reavy said, him, oh, no, you've done it now. He said, oh, what do you mean? He said, Well, we're gonna lose on Saturday because you just put new shoes on the on the desk. <laughs> he believed that, you know, it's it was bizarre. And there's an incident in the 1956 cup final where he's getting changed, he takes two blocks of woods out of his jacket. Ken Barnes says, "When are those donny He said, oh, a, uh, "A gypsy has said, I carry these around and I achieve all my dreams.' Just, you know, it's just it's all these little things that ornamental elephants. He had a problem with did you know, like those. Hated birds. He thought he lost the '65 Cup Final because there was an owl on the Leeds shirt and a liver bird in a Liverpool shirt. You know what I mean? So, oh, that was all bad luck for him as well. And there's a there's a lovely picture in the book as well, which which he Shankly and really walk off the '65 Cup Final." And, you know, Shankly's swaggering like a gangster, I, you know, that was a proper, he loved all those movie gangsters, James Cagney and then George Raft and all those, and he, he always thought he was like one of them. And um Reeve's there with a fixed man's face, his, his pockets are full of rabbit's foots and lucky charms and other things, wearing a blue suit, we all thought it was lucky, and walking behind him is Bobby Collins, the captain leads five for three of him wearing yellowing woolen socks. The reason, they won every time he wore them. He insisted they wore them that day as well. So you could right. see that it's still this idea that he's trying to grab for something that he can't control, you know what I mean? So I think that's, and that that comes, I think, from a, a background where life is very uncertain and life is very short. And also you'll think his mother was 51 when she died. That life is very short as well and uncertain
0: for him, I think. And I, that, those things get embedded into it in your formative years, you know? Yeah, so explains a lot. But as a player, as I mentioned, there he played for played for Leicester and played for Manchester City, played for England. He won six caps, scored four goals, and he scored on his debut um, as one or two <laughs> England managers have done. And he was also the Football Writers' Player of the Year back in '55. <laughs> but reading the book, it was like he was always reaching for the for the next best club or or trying to. <laughs> To find that that next best club, and I think sometimes he was a little hard done by. I think he said though, you know, Leicester was the only club where he felt he was in a family atmosphere.
1: He was where he was being looked after. You know, you know, he married the he married the manager's niece in LCLC. LC Duncan was part of the famous Duncan family. Three brothers who played for Leicester anyway. I think the move from Leicester to Hull, you want to play with Rash Carter. He thought you could learn from Rash Carter. I try to get it over in the book. I think. In that chapter, that whole chapter, he sits down with Rish Carter. Now, bear in mind, he was even at that age, he was mad about tactics. He was under George Sanderson when he was in Middlesbrough, who was a tactician and he used a board to, with corks on to move around the sort of players. You know, he then was at Sep Spiff at Leicester, we came very close to him again. All he taught was tactics. He sits there with card Carter, with that point was a very, you know, we don't even remember him now. That's the sad thing about these, most of these players now. But he was seen as if they were Stanley Matthews, you know, as, a, as an inside forward. And he was expecting, you know, just downloading information was somebody you reveled in. And he tries speaking to Rash Carter and Rash Carter gives him one word answers and then throws a few football box and he goes to bed. And Don's just sitting there going, i made a huge mistake. So I think that was the move from Leicester to Hell genuinely was he wanted to learn from someone and he thought going under Rash Carter he learned that disappointment. The move to Man City was uh, a real ambition. He realized to be stuck around with Hull Steve's and becoming just another journeyman and he just went there. And I think the problem was that he he could be very thin-skinned. I mean, with with Man City, there's the best stuff where he goes on holidays where he says that uh, he signed it off with a manager and and, he, and they said he didn't. Um, and, he signed, and then he, he got suspended. He was footballer of the Year and he wanted out after that. He goes to Sunderland. He ends up having a punch-up with a manager and ends up going to Leeds and again, you know, there's, there's all these these instances where he's quick to take offense, I think, sometimes. You know, perhaps there's maybe a fail in him, I don't know. But I, I, I sense that he's always looking for that place where he belongs. Yeah. And that doesn't really come to him, I don't think, until 61, 62, when he's the manager of leads and he can shape shape that side around him. He gets in leads what he wants, he gets free. You know, Harry Reynolds gives him the money. He's also got a set of young players, the Norman hunters of this world, Paul Reeney's, Maidley. Very famously, Billy Bremner was there, Gary Sprig was there. And he can mould those boys all looking up to him because he's football of the year. He was captain of the side as well. Now he's manager and he's the father figure and he can mould that. He can find that he can do what he wants for that club and he gets total control there. And that's why I think Leeds went off and became such a fantastic side, to be honest.
0: Well, it it, it wasn't immediate, was it? He was there for 13 years, I believe. But when he took over, he he began, they were in the, the old second division. Yeah, I mean they were
1: lucky not to go to the third division. I mean he was it came down the final the day of the season in uh, in '63. You know, it wasn't really for him. I don't believe until Bobby Collins came along that he had a prayer. Bobby Collins, five foot three. Derek Temple said to me, you know, described him as one of the most temperamental people he'd ever met. Again, would was was I think Reavy would be thin-skinned and leave. Bobby Collins would be looking for a punch up. You know, there's one incident where he where he he didn't have the hook he wanted in the Everton. He came from Everton, I should say. He came from Goodison Park, but he did the hook he wanted, and he he wanted to fight everybody in the the dressing room. But what he did, he came there, senior pro again, very famous former Celtic, former Everton players like Billy Bremner wanted to aspire to be like him. He was playing in the centre midfield. He was the they call him the pocket Napoleon. He was the general. He turned all around off the back of Bobby Collins being there. There's the Scrumptious winger at Manchester United go Johnny Giles. John looks at Leeds when they can, he got a chance to go to Blackburn or Leeds. He looks at Leeds. He goes, Bobby Collins. He said to me, "He said, I said, why do you sign for Leeds?" He said, two reasons." So two words, he said, Bobby Collins. Because if Bobby Collins was there, there was something about that side. And so through that, he was attracting those players. But until Bobby came along, there was real problems. But also, I think people forget about what he did to Jack Charlton. I mean, he says to Jack Charlton when they're playing together, Jack, if I was ever manager of this club, you'd be the first person out the door. But yeah. then when he does become manager, he says to uh, Jack Charlton, you screw your nut on, right? And I can make you an England player. And Jack Charlton then under him flourished and became an England player, went from being this who well, was more interested in drinking, gambling, and field sports, suddenly became very focused. And famously then, you know, went on to become a member of the 1966 World Cup winning side. So people forget that he was turning players like that round, you know, he was looking at them saying, There's something in this boy, you know, but I've got to I've got to bring that out. And I think that was the the real magic in what he managed to achieve at, at uh, Leeds United. You know, and again, when we talk about famous players come in, Alan Peacock came there, was famously partnered with, uh, with Clough at Middlesbrough as well, was was breaking all records as well. So, you know, I think after Bobby Collins came there, that said everything in store and that was the start of Leeds. The downside of that is I think players like Bremner uh, were sort of ingrained by Collins. They needed to look after themselves. And that's where the... The toughness and the aggression that we knew from Leeds in the in the fame in the glory years—that's where that come from. That that Bobby Collins um, mentality, I think.
0: Well, there's two things you mentioned there: Brian Clough, and we'll we'll touch on him in a minute. But he said that the glory years, and and they really were for Leeds because pretty much throughout his time, they were always in the hunt for trophies. Or, I mean, I, th- I don't think it was really classed as like the top four back then. But if it was today, they. They would still be classed as a, a great team in the top four. Um they were FA Cup finalists, FA Cup winners, title winners, European trophy winners, which was what the, the old Fairs Cup and Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 And so Revy always to me, reading the book, he always wanted though that one step further, the European Cup. And I think that was possibly one thing that maybe he he went regretting.
1: What he said, I think is a is a is an interview. Um, towards the end of his life that he gave when, when he died, was diagnosed with motor neuron disease, where he said, I lived for the day when we won the League Championship. I lived for the day when we won the European Cup. I lived for the day then when we could play for the World Club Championship and we could say we were the best side in the world. And it never happened. And of all the things, I think, you know, this is a guy very driven, very ambitious, and I'm going the saddest thing he said, he never, never got there. And I think at that point, I think what he realised was, I think this is where the turning point in Rivi comes, where you see what people remember Rivi as, this paranoid, obsessed, desperate to win. This guy that that is just so aloof almost, because he's so tunnel vision about winning. I think he wins the title in 1969. He does have a huge ambition. He says himself he wants to be up there. Well, Bear in the mind that point, you're near Jockstein and Matt Busby, what Sir Matt Busby by then had won the European Cup. He was dead. He thought the only, even though he was called one of the greatest managers of all time, it was his record. He felt he would only be seen as one of the greatest if he could get his name with Steen and Busby. Right. And of course, you know, the furthest they got was the 1969 semi final against Celtic, which they lost. But then he realises, and like now, and you mean, you mean Champions League all the way through, going from from the moment they got promoted to the time he left, they never finished below any of the traditional places. Five times they were runs up, twice they the were- league champions, they would have been playing Champions League all the time. But in that those days, he had to win the title to become to compete in the European Champions Cup. And that, in the end, I think absolutely drove him mad. You know, they lost out in 71 to Arsenal on the final day of the season, and Tottenham and Arsenal drew. Arsenal wouldn't have won the double and lead to being champions in seventy two. Had they had they not played the FA Cup three days beforehand and lost to Wolves, they'd been champions again in seventy two. And seventy four, they were champions. So you've got a lot. You know, there are two occasions, definitely, where they should have been champions. I mean, in 1965, far back in 65, the first season of the top flight, they only lost out to Manchester United on uh, on goal average, as it was then. You know what I mean? So they were always very close. But I think once he had that taste, that European Cup, he wanted more. And it drove it. And I think, I said, Johnny Jell says it as well, I've in the book, he didn't realise you couldn't win them all. And in the end, it drove him absolutely mad. And I think, you know, this is where... The problems then come with Stokoe, come with Clef. They're in his way. He wants that European Cup desperately, he wants to get his hands on it. And I think, you know, I think Clef has said in that interview, in the calendar interview with Austin Mature, he said, it was not a fraction of you not taking that England job. And I just wonder what was going on. You know, you never know what people think at the time. I wonder what he was thinking in 1975 when Leeds reached the European Cup final against Bayern Munich and were robbed of it. Let's be fair, they were robbed. Yeah. They had two goals yeah. to sell out, right? It was, was a travesty, you know. And I wonder what was Revi was commentating that much. I wonder what was going through his mind. I wonder if he was thinking, "Well, I'd rather be down there and than at Lancaster Gate." You know, yeah. <laughs>
0: but you don't know. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, as you say, seventy-three England failed to to get to the World Cup in ni- the nineteen seventy-four World Cup, and and obviously Alf Ramsey was in charge there. And there was the famous Poland game, and Revy was. I've always been I think had uh, been touted a few times before as as being the England manager and then Joe Mercer obviously came in for a, a little while. But Don said that Alf Ramsey was treated quite harshly in, in being taken from the, mm-hmm. the England job. It's interesting though, it's far back when
1: we when uh, Ramsey first took the job in 60 sixty two and name was being touted even then, I it mean, was. alongside people like Jackie Milburn. So he it was, it was, it was in the mix for a long time for that job. And I think I mentioned as well, in 1970, when Wilf McGuinness was sacked, there was a heavy, there was the heavy, lots of stories in the press at that point were that Alf Ramsey was going to go to Manchester United and Reeve was going to replace him in England. So there was always this idea that anything happened with, with Ramsey, Reeve was going to come in and replace him. And I think there's a myth that's grown up, obviously, about Ramsey that, you know, he had that, that terrible draw against Poland. But then he led them to a nil-nil draw against Portugal. He even picked the side for for the, for the games that Joe Mercer had take, taken over in front for. There was no plan within the FA to, for another man to come in. You know, they just decided. Harold Thompson, as the vice chair of the FA at that point, he decided they want, he didn't like Reeve and didn't like Ramsey. He wanted to get, we'll do anything to get rid of him. And again, this insecurity with Reavy. Reavy always said that, you know, of the outstanding record that um, Ramsey had, he won the World Cup in 1966, they, he had some bad luck in 1970, but believed they would have won the World Cup again in 1970. Reavy's on record as saying that. He felt they had a lot of bad luck with Benetti and Banks and the Heat got to them, et cetera. But he always said they would have won the World Cup in 1970. But he always said that if they could sack him after just one bad game, then they'd have no, no worries about getting rid of Reavy as well. And this was insecure at the with him. And I think the reason he thought Ramsey was treated, Ramsay was treated poorly in terms of also he he was one of the lowest paid managers as well, outside of the top, you know, if in comparison to the, the top right, like, Ramsey wasn't paid very well. He was treated horrendously by Harold Tom, Sir Harold Thompson, who was always a snob and obviously fell out with Reedy as well at another point. But I also think Reedy was always conscious that uh Ramsey didn't have a very good um reputation with the press and very often I think Ramsey came across like he was being persecuted by the press and that was the first thing that Reavy tried to do was you know, curry favour with the press some of the signals giving sandwiches and tea doing press conferences always being available speaking of football writers conferences as he did as well the talking at Manchester where he invited 54 players and also the press were allowed to come there as well so he was always very open so I think I think uh, Reavy felt that, that Ramsey was treated very very harshly very harshly indeed
0: what i found was was quite interesting that he didn't actually apply for the job and the the job position was hap- actually advertised in the times england manager <laughs> which i think is yeah. is amazing but obviously he yeah. he got the job back in 74 england hadn't qualified for the for the world cup that year but obviously 78 was on the horizon five year contract and a salary of 25000 pounds and i read in the book it was quoted as him saying, I'm delighted to be given the chance to manage England. This must be any manager's dream. Mm. And as you say, he he sort of threw himself into it in the respect that he wanted to be treated well by the press. But one thing I I do just want to sort of touch on, the salary there, £25,000, as they say, was far more than Mm. um, Alf Ramsey was, was being paid. Throughout the book... He was always looking to secure his family's future is is what's often said mm-hmm. from a from a financial position. Was, was, he, was it be fair to say he was money driven? I think you've got to look you look at this, you know, it's easy to look back on modern eyes and say
1: he was money driven. You know, I, I it's this sort of come home to me when I looked at John, Johnny Giles very kindly showed me his very first Manchester United contract. No. And he was on twelve pound a week during the season, an eight pound and off season. You know, it was, and he also had the maximum wage as well. You had instances of Jack Charlton, you know, shooting and skinning rabbits and selling to fellow players. Plus, he was, you know, Terry Vendor said, I always used to like going to Leeds because I always come back with cloth for a new suit for my tailor. So because he was always, Jack Charlton was selling him the cloth. Um, You know, so I think football, there wasn't money in football. Of course, he was, going to start, he was going to look for money. Of course, he was going to be... And also, you know, it's a very insecure profession, you know. You know, he says himself, you know, in his first season, you, you know, he assured should, he'd should get sacked. If he'd taken one third third division, he was an untried manager. They would have got rid of him, but some more experienced Then, You know, he said that himself. So, there's always a level of insecurity around him. He was never a rich man doing the way he was playing. they will get to the millions they did today. Yeah. So, I think it's easy, to, you know, it's very easy and very simplistic to go, yeah, he was very money-motivated, but I don't think he was any different than anybody else who was doing the other side. I mean, nobody said it about, nobody said it about Franny Lee then, Franny Lee making millions of a recycling company. But Franny Lee did the same thing. All he did was secure his family's future. Nobody said about Jack Charlton and his sports shops. Yeah, he did. Nobody said about Terry Venables having tailor shops or, or that wig uh, company he had in the 60s. No, nobody said those things. But because it was, re, you know, because of what happened with, I think, Dubai, you know, it sort of framed him as this Don Ready's character, which I don't think he was doing anything different than anybody else, to be honest. They all had to make. They have to top up their money. They don't have a pension as well, doing my year as well. So, yeah, you know, from one respect, it is easy to fall into that trap of saying he was money motivated, but I don't think he was any any different or anybody else who was playing at that point. Yeah. Oh, manager than that point, should say.
0: Yeah. Obviously, the 78 World Cup was the, the aim, or, or there was also the 76 Euros um, at the time. He, he got off to a, a relatively decent start as as England manager. Yeah. I mean, as a a total he played or managed 29 games he won 14 drew eight uh and lost seven but unfortunately i think that the losses were more in the competitive games rather than the, yeah. the friendlies um although there was a couple of friendlies where they were outclassed uh there was the the netherlands friendly you mentioned as well about when he brought together all the the england players in a Oh, um, a hotel. Is it a Leicester hotel or or Manchester. Right? Manchester. Um, He's uh, Midland. He's Midland. That's, He's Manchester. That's right. Yeah. Bought loads of them in. Introduced himself. Um. But and then there was, like you say, Emlyn Hughes. Um. He he didn't get on the right side of him straight away, did he? Mm.
1: No. I, I mean. I mean, I think his problem was, and he said this himself later on, he was searching and searching, and he thought, he genuinely naively looking back now, he thought I'm going to work with the best players in the country. I can pick whoever I want. And he said he was searching and searching. He was looking for Johnny Giles. He was looking for Billy Bremner. But the fact was, Johnny Giles was Irish, Bremner was Scottish. You know, what he realized quickly was suddenly, if there's a problem in the center of the park, I can buy, I just walk my checkbook and I'll buy you someone. It's not like that with England manager. And I think the the real issue was he didn't have world-class players. And like He said himself later on, he said he used to go before the press and say, oh, I've got world-class players here. And it he was a Bayfler slay. He felt the only two world-class players he actually had were Ray Kennels and Kevin Keegan. It was nobody else he felt that was, was good enough at that level. And I think, I don't know what the issue was with Hughes, but I would say, especially with Hughes and with Alan Ball as well, he seemed to be such a fantastic man manager at Leeds, yet he lost that in England. And I, there was a there was two issues really. I think a lot of it was he couldn't settle in his first play because he was constantly looking for the Giles and the Brenner that he needed in centre midfield. The at point was that he really he really just struggled. I think with not having day to day interaction with the players, and for him, you know, as I said, building this family atmosphere. That was very, very important to him as well. And I mean, you know, he sees the players two or three days a month or something if if he's lucky, you know. So I think those those were the struggles as well there. But I think getting back to the Alan Ball situation in particular, I think we get in the book as well. He drops Alan Ball. He has a very good PR stunt against Germany in 75, where he names Alan Ball the captain as a nod in the winter, the 1966 World Cup. He's the only survivor of that World Cup squad at that point, Alan Ball. Yet then writes a letter to him and says, I'm no longer going to select you, but thank you for your service. Signed by a secretary you know signed in absence of Don Reevy, uh, predicted to buy him to a secretary now you don't you know whatever you think of Alan Ball, you don't treat people like that especially somebody who's given service to the country like that Alan Ball gets upset his wife Leslie runs the press and then he gets all this sort of stuff up all Don Revy wants to play is robots all he wants is, is players who say yes Mr Reevy. no Mr Reevy. three bags full Mr Reevy. it hurts Don you know but that was the problem for some and the other issue I said, you know, there's three issues there the last issue would say as well was that he seemed to be, and Ted Croker says in his book as well, he seemed to be very influenced by the press. If there was a press campaign for a particular player, then he would play them. And Malcolm McDonald, he, Malcolm McDonald told me that he said to him, "Look, come up here." He said, i will only put you in the side because I've been told to pick you by the press." He said, "If you don't score tonight," this is before the Luxembourg game. If you don't score tonight, forget about we're never being selected ever again. Charlie George was another one who did just one cap and shouted at him when he was leaving the pitch as well. Stan Bowles, another one who was very late to talk and still played him, even though. The disciplinarian and at Leeds would not have found that acceptable. Somebody turned up late for this, this get-together they had in Manchester. So I think there was there was those three issues there that were, play, were affected his confidence in the end. I think he started eroding this confidence and also the problems he had behind the scenes with Harold Thompson. I think it eroded this confident facade that he had when he was United.
0: Yeah. I mean, just to go back on a couple of those, maybe to explain a little more, there was the Alan Ball thing, which, which I wasn't aware of at the time, but reading the book, you can sort of, maybe backtrace a little bit to when he was a manager of Leeds and he was trying to purchase him from Everton. Yeah. Uh, was it Everton? No, Blackpool. 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 And there yeah. was supposedly some underhand payments going to to Ball, who then turned down Revy and Leeds and went to Everton. So I, I wondered mm. if that was maybe something in that one. The the Malcolm McDonald one, and as you mentioned, the Luxembourg game picked on the on the basis of the press, and went and scored all five goals, yeah. didn't it? And that yeah. was pretty much two fingers up to to his own manager. Yeah, um, yeah. it's yeah, it's it's uh, very very strange. So you tried to bring in, I think, bring in those that Leeds family ideology that he had. He had all that, the dossiers, didn't he? Whilst he was yeah. at Leeds, they'd have, have all these players scouted um, and he had that down to a T, then wanted to try and do it for England and and the players he had weren't interested. No, they weren't interested. I mean, the other thing he says at his first press
1: conference, I, I plan to build this team along international lines. He, he needs involvement. He says, I need to be involved. That's why at the end of 23s were moved from playing on the same day as the senior side into a different location, different times, so we could watch them as well and, and the youth sides as well. But it just wasn't there. I mean, carpet bowls work well. But the thing is, you can understand these players leads, the Bremners, the Hunters, to go back to that, the Reenies, the Spriggs, they were with him from the age of 14. They knew nothing else. All they knew was carpet bowls, bingo, and, and putting competitions for golf. then Kevin Keegan told me when Stan Bowles, they were doing the putting competition, just slammed the ball and walked out, you know, and, and, you know, and that's, it just wasn't there. He couldn't build that family atmosphere. But also, like I said, he was very... Involvement is something he talks about an awful lot. I need to be involved with the players. I like being around the boys. I massage them down with my own hands. I need to feel a connection. They're my sons. You know, and then he goes to England, and it's not there. You know, but how can it be there? They all, You know, it was, it was, what's interesting is Alan Clark told me a story. He said, once he was injured, he wasn't injured. And he was called up the England squad. And uh, Don Reavy said to Alan Clark. Tell him you're injured. He said, I'm not injured. He said, Tell Alf you're injured. He said, I'm not injured, though. He said, He said, look, he said, Who pays your wages? Yeah. And that was another issue as well. That that would have gone around. You know, you'd have had that from the other club managers that he he was doing that to Sir Alf. So why would he expect why would he expect anybody to treat him any different when he was doing the job? You know, if he was telling them who pays your wages, you know. So I think it was a, there was a lot of suspicion around it as well.
0: Yeah. As England manager, he was he was trying to well, I think he was probably banging his head against a, a brick wall by trying to get the the FA on his side by postponing fixtures. So I mean, that sort of there were various things that he had at Leeds where he was a bit of a visionary, and and this could have been a a real mm. vision and and should have been done because I think that probably would have helped um, him and the England team. But but the FA weren't the FA weren't keen on it, were they? I, th- I think no. I think his problem
1: was the football league. He'd fallen out with Alan Hardaker. In honestly, probably held. You know, I'm going to say Alan Hardaker. You know, he held football back about 30 years. I mean, this the introduction of the league cap specifically because he wanted the league cap to compete with the FA cap, which sounds laughable now. You know, this guy. This is a guy who says, "Oh, football on television will never take off." You know, you just you just wonder at this point. if You had. Somebody like that in a comm- of a comm- head of a commercial organization talking like that, you'd be the door the first day, you wouldn't last a week, yeah. No, and I think you know, really said there's a, a great example of, of how he's banging his head against a brick wall. With this guy, Alan Hardy was a, it was a you know, for want of a word, total conservative. He's totally conservative, there's so nothing to change. Football kick off the really awesome. three no Sunday games, no television, and the league kept to replace the FA cup, so you can increase his empire, shall we say. So, 1969, um, Leeds won the league championships, he goes to the directors. Look, we've got a problem here. He said, you know, we just won the league. He said, you know, the players gonna want more bonuses. They are on, and go on going to go gonna want more money. We're gonna to have to try and keep them. They've now won the league title. We're the best side in the country. We've got to keep them together. I've got an idea. He said, why don't we get a big firm to write the name across our shirts? He said, We um, that will solve our problems. We get the players' wages in one false swoop by doing that. Leads directors go, Yeah, that's a brilliant idea, Don. Goes over the lid of them saying Now ah. so again, all respect, Lydham St. Anne's is a nice place, but what the, what is the Football League headquarters doing in a place like Lydham St. Anne's, which That's is good. more famous for British Open Golf? So He goes over there, he speaks to Alan Hardacre, he puts this to Alan Hardacre, Alan Hardacre chucks him out of the office saying, you're going to turn this game into a circus. And he said to him, so one day that will come to pass. So you've got the ultimate innovate. Now we accept that. We accept companies' names on shirts, on even on shoulders now, you know. Yeah. And he gets that. A true innovator comes up against the Conservative and goes nah, out the door. So when he goes, so they've already fallen out. Hardacre thinks Reeves just just somebody on the make. So when he goes to him, um, Alan, do you think you can cancel games? There's an almighty row in the press. Now, to me and to you as well, to people listening, it probably does. Why? If you want your England team to be successful, Why would potentially want your players to get injured on the Saturday, be ahead of the Wednesday for the big qualifier?
0: Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. To me, it's common sense. But that, but to but to Hardik and not football league was it? Forget international football as well. And he was. It was just reviews critical. He was also critical of Ramsey as well. You know, so it's just one of those things. I think.
0: Yeah, the World Cup qualifying draw was. Well, not the, not the same as it is now, um, but basically we England were drawn with Italy, Finland and Luxembourg. Italy beat England in Rome. It was the general consensus. England were outplayed. Then England lost in a friendly to the Netherlands. And I think that was when sort of maybe the public tide and the media were beginning to maybe turn against Revy they were never really going to qualify for the 78 World Cup. And yeah. and that was when the pressure, he, he felt the pressure then, didn't he? And and things were starting to yeah. go through his head.
1: I think, I think, I think, though, you know, we talked, we talked earlier about fine margins about losing seven games, but, you know, it's the seven games you lose. If you lose a friendly against, I don't know, say you lose seven friendlies against Germany, France and Italy. But then when it comes to the World Cup semi-finally, you, you beat Germany and you're, you know, it so it's fine margins, and the, the, the two games that probably turned it all around was years before, was in 1975, ahead of the 76, nation European Nations Cup, which became the Euros. Yeah. They yeah. lost to Czechoslovakia, and then drew against Portugal, which meant they didn't qualify. Not qualifying for the Nations Cup meant they were seeded then for the World Cup. So there was always a danger they were going to meet one of the European superpowers, which they did with Italy. And now Italy at that point might have had a bit, you know, they were coming out of a transition phase. You know, your people like Capella were still there. But the nucleus of that side was the side that went on to win the, Europe, the World Cup in 1982. You know, it I mean? you know, they took it took six years. Dino Zoff as a keeper, yeah. for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the problem was that my fine margin of error, that not failing the Qualify for the Nations Cup, give them a very tough game, you know. And I think, um, as Fred Street said, Again, the issue isn't so much the, the results against the top players. And if you look at the Italian game, they lost 2-0 in Rome. They had bay and under Ron Greenwood. They won 2-0 at Wembley, but it was too late. The fact is, against the Finlands and the Luxembourgs, it's, you know, very often the two top sides in a group of four will cancel each other out, which is what happened here. So you've got to run up cricket scores against Finland and Luxembourg. And all, very often, as Fred Street said, the tougher games are the Luxembourgs, because you've got to win at that point 8-9-10-0 because, you know, Italy can do the same thing. So yes. it's all about a race to the top. And actually what was done for England in that um in that group? I was the goal difference. They just didn't rep enough enough, uh, enough goals against the Finlands and then a terrible game against Finland. Um, they were disappointing against Luxembourg as well. They didn't score as many goals as Italy and they were out. And so that was, so re, in reality, you know, where there's a lot of myth about, oh yeah, they got played off the park by the Italians in Rome. And how many, how many teams have been played off the park by the Italians in Rome, you know? The reality was they didn't do well enough against the Finland and Luxembourg to put themselves the pressure on the Italians with goal difference, which would have meant that game against and the Greenwood, that you know they'd won that and the superior goal difference. Of course, they had been in the World Cup, and we've been talking about you know what a missed opportunity Reeve had rather than what a failure he was. You know, uh,
0: very true. Yeah. There was a point, obviously, where the pressure got to him, and he he was approached by uh, the UAE. Um, Mm -hmm. United Arab Emirates that as I say he didn't take that last game against Italy at Wembley and you mentioned Ron Greenwood he took that but the as I mentioned at the very beginning the UAE the Dubai I I had no real knowledge about other than just Don Mm -hmm. Revy and sort of in brackets UAE I didn't know the whole story about that so go on tell us a bit how how this sort of came about
1: well, I think I think this is that actually this is a point where I, when I I came in on the Don Revie story. You know, he seemed to just burn brightly, become Leeds you know, Leeds manager, the England manager, then go to the UAE and then disappear off the face of the planet completely. You know, and it it's always seemed quite odd to me this very northern man, you know, very northern Yorkshire man, why he got the UAE. But I think you picked up earlier there, Russell, about um, the Holland game, and the Holland game I think destroyed him in the respect of confidence-wise. I mean, this was a guy who always thought he was deep thinking about the game, the reevee Pan, you know, the master tactician. And he really wanted to test himself against the total football of, um, of Rinus Michaels. And I use Rinus Michaels as an example. He's he seen Rinus Michaels as an example in the in the book as well, as someone who dominated it with Ajax, was, was a nowhere club, a bit like Leeds, and they won three European Cups in a row. Yeah. And he, he wanted to really test himself. And that night he came up against the two Johans, he uh, came against Johan Cruyff and Johnny Repp ripped them apart and I think um, Jeff Power wrote in the Daily Mail and I quoted the book as well England joined the also rounds of world football tonight even if they qualified for that World Cup they weren't going to do much because they were so far behind the team like Holland and at this point Harold Thompson Harold Thompson was agitated and was apparently Lord Hayward who was the president of Legion United and was also cousin of the Queen informed Revy after the match that um, that Harold Thompson had approached the Cobalt family who owned Ipswich Town with a view to appointing Bobby Robson to replace him, now um, Reavy obviously got wind of this. Now at this time as well, Reavy wasn't Reavy wasn't without offers before the UAE. Kim Reavy told me um, John approached him after one of the England games and said, "I've got Watford in the fourth division. I want you to come there and do to, do to Watford what you did to Leeds." And Reavy said, "I can't do it. I'm an England manager. I can't do it." He said, well, who have you got in mind?" He said, "I've got Bobby Moore." He said, "Go for Graham Taylor. He's the best young manager in the, in the league. He's been at Lillish Show me. He's the best. One of the best students we've ever had." And the best is history. Everton approached him as well. There was an already approaching 1973. The Moores family approached him and he said, Look, if you wait till November, I'll be able a position to take the job. They didn't want to do that. And they, yeah, you know, they went off on other ones. The UAE comes in. Now he knows how Thompson's out to get him and how Thompson allegedly said to Lord Haywood in the Finland game, Let's hope it's a big win, a good win tonight. Haywood says to Thompson, Thompson goes, Yeah, but a good loss and we can be done with it all. Which was he wanted to get rid of Reevey. Yeah. So yeah. Reevy knows. Thompson, now his chairman of the FA, absolutely hates him. Um, They're hate agitating to replace him with Bobby Robson. The UE comes along as well, £350,000 tax free over, over a five year contract. Reavies thinking, in and go in. And also gets the chance to run football from top to bottom. So he gets exactly what he handed Leeds, but he's at a real starting point where he's the supreme, he's going to develop football in schools, he's going to develop uh, youth teams, he's got to develop the national team. This is really right to the street. And also, I think as well, I think Reevee may have seen the England job as a semi-retirement job, then a part-time job, going from Leeds, he's playing 60 games a season to only even maybe eight or nine important games over just a period of five years. So he's seen that. So the UAE became the job that he thought England was. That's a retirement job. And also it satisfies the one thing that's in him that we started this conversation about, satisfies that need for financial security. £350,000 tax-free is going to make me financially secure. And I get to be in the sun and I get to be in semi-retirement and I haven't got the pressure of the England job. And he goes over there, and that's the point where he decides to go. They're going to get rid of me anyway. I'm going to go before, I'm going to jump before I get pushed. Yeah. That's sort
0: of yeah. It was yeah. the way it happened. He sort of made a bit of a rod for his own back in the fact that he got, and we've mentioned Jeff Powell, the Daily Mail um, journalist. Yeah, he got yeah. him involved, and they, they went, to, to Dubai, I think, via Athens and trying to circumnavigate yeah. anyone yeah. else. Um, but by getting him involved meant all the other journalists and newspapers and media outlets, they felt sort of aggrieved. Well, you know, out. that
1: was, you know, I think Alex Montgomery was the, the Sun writer who I interviewed and was very helpful in the book. He said, you know, Frank Cleff, who was his boss at the time the Sun, was incandescent with Rich. He'd introduced Revy to Jeff. You know what I mean? He couldn't believe why, why Don would do that. And the knives are out for him in Fleet Street at that point. You do not give an exclusive like that to one paper and then run away and make yourself unavailable for interviews as well. So you know, Daily Mail were controlling the story. And there's a there's a brilliant um, story in the book where uh, Jeff told me this, where they land in Athens and somebody recognized Reavy. And so they thought, what's he doing in Athens? Is he going for a job over here? So they ring up a newspaper and say, "Just seen Don leaving Athens." It looks like he's leaving an England job. Turns up the paper they run with the Daily Mail. <laughs> Jeff said, "I could have destroyed the story there and then." But um, yeah, that was the that was the huge huge problem. And also, I think as well, um, the story broke before actually, the there was resignation letter reached the FA as well. So the FA were incandescent it with rage as well. But I think also, uh, I think you've got to bear in mind you don't want Walter Winderbond and Al Ramsey. I mean, between them, I think they had about just 20-odd, years, you know, for 30 years, the only two people he knew was England manager the Winterbottom or Ramsey. And suddenly, Reeves resigned after three years of a job that he says that that anybody worth their salt would want. Why has he walked away? And I think he left all these, these questions behind. But um, I think then the FA banned him for 10 years from any football activity from 1977 to 1987. There was also a court case where he, where he bristled every time he said he, he spoke to Harold Thompson. So there was all sorts that went on. But then, you know, I think the judge, Justice Cantley, who actually stood, um, I don't know if you've seen the programme, A Very English Scandal, about about Jeremy Thorpe and Norman Scott, was actually the same judge in the trial. same judge okay. for the following year for Don Reavy. He said he was a prickly man who obsessed about perceived slights, perceived, imagined perceived slights. So even his reputation was destroyed in court as well. So the one thing he ought to do was to clear his reputation. Actually, made it made it even worse for him, I think.
0: Yeah. One thing I I was amazed at, he didn't actually have I, any full FA coaching badges. No. Did he? He, he, just, he just a certificate. Yeah. <laughs> but he's not.
1: Yeah. But I think you know you're going to go on now. I don't want to. Spoil, I don't want to spoil the the future podcast. But. Uh, I think you'll find he's not the only England manager. Ken Hoddle was another one who didn't have the, the required coaching badges at the time as well. Oh. I think Ted Croker says in his book as well that that he felt by it pointing, Reeve, he made a mockery of the coaching system as well because a green was in charge of the schoolboys who never
0: managed it as well. <laughs> well. You see what uh, the FA said that was like during those days. You know what I mean? It oh, yeah. was it was a surprise that one. Um, yeah, and and another thing. I think it was, you mentioned Kim Reavy, his, his daughter, and I think it was in the book that she said, when he went to the UAE, as we look at that area now, it's a, obviously a huge up-and-coming, or it is a well-established part of the world now. But looking back on it, he was one of the, maybe the, the early instigators of that area becoming what it is now, by having such yeah. a high-profile person go there.
1: It was the desert. There was nothing there. It's not like it is now. I've never been to the UAE, but you know, this this skyscrapers there, this you know, all sorts of leisure complexes. But, you know, you got the Dubai Grand Prix there now. You, but the way he said though, in the 1978, he said, you know, this place is mushrooming. It's going to be huge in 10 years' time. You know what I mean? And it was the the money they poured into Dubai. But when he went there, it was, it was literally the desert years. Of yeah. course, I should use that as the title of the chapter for that.
0: so I mean he's he spent seven years out there in in various positions Um, I I get the impression he he enjoyed it but it didn't really go his way I mean as a team the UAE were never really gonna be be huge but then sort of after that time he he returned back to England said that he he wasn't ever gonna get involved in football again and I think he had a, a few offers but but was true to his word and and ended up in in Scotland which was where his his wife Elsie came from
1: yeah yeah he, but he came close to QPR in uh, when uh, when Alan Hudson uh, was sacked Jim Gregory was very very keen on taking him in 1984 to to manage QPR I got very very close and I I don't know judging what I've read about Jim Gregory. I don't know if it was a PR stunt that he was going to bring Don Reavy back to English football. Don was very keen on going there actually, All right. and apparently they the negotiations ended because Don Reavy t- changed the terms of what he the money he wanted. He said it was a slight different way he wanted to be paid. But but again, Greg, Gregory ran to the, the press and said, "Oh, is Don being greedy again?" You know, and Don Don was quite annoyed about it. He said, "You know, he rang him up and said." Um, he met him, to travelled travel to Loftus Road to meet him. They met him at a hotel nearby. So Dom's expecting to come back in the QPR in 1984. You know, he said himself, he's, a, he's 30 years of experience at that point or 40 years of experience at that point. He thinks he can pass something over. And even ITN were running as a story and, um, and Thames Television. So there, there was, there's archive footage that's very serious about that. But um, he was also touted for the Man City job when Man City were having problems. Coated once for the Arsenal job as well. And also the lead, interestingly, as late as when Eddie Gray left uh, the Leeds job, he was quoted in the in the mirror as as his plan was that Review becomes a supremo when Johnny Johns becomes the manager. But then obviously uh Reeve said, No, I'm never going back to Leeds where come repeat what I've done there and things like that. Yeah, but in the main, apart from those little, you know, could I was biggest story, but those little sort of uh his names being connected, you have very little to do with football, you know. Um you say for coaching. Um, Yorkshire television uh football schools as well. And he retired to to Scotland um in nineteen eighty six with his his wife back in uh, Kinross.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and he well played golf a lot there, but yeah. unfortunately also, he won
1: the players' champ he play won the players' championship twice in in the fifties,
0: would you believe? Think-
1: he used to have a players' championship every year and he won it to he won it back to back when he was at Man City. Yeah. But uh, for golf. Oh yeah, they every summer, some of these players. To there's a lovely, there's a lovely story. Kevin, it was an a side, really. Kevin Keegan tells. He says, so they went to see, um, Shankly. They were Liverpool with Kevin Keegan, and um, and they, at that point, all the teams had golf teams, and um, they needed to push on the manager. And Kevin Keegan, Emily, who said, um, he said, come, can, we, can so Kevin was that that squeaky was, Hey, can we have, can we have a, can we have a, can we have a Liverpool golf site, boss? Can we, can we? And Kevin Keegan back, yeah, yeah, I. Yeah, I think we should do. I really enjoy golf. And Chantley doesn't look up for us and says, they got a golf team, eh? He said, um, yes, they have. He said, well, they keep playing golf and we'll keep winning championships. Out you go, boys. I love Golf was always huge football. I love that. So yeah, played a lot of golf. Was, I think he was a six handicap. But actually, interestingly, Kevin, Key had a place in uh, mabea and Kevin Keegan was one of his golfing partners, actually. So they were they were very close, yeah when ah. Keegan retired from Newcastle yeah
0: well yeah. i mean i know keegan said some some nice words at his funeral which i guess is is where we are sort of now he was up in in kinross in scotland and and then unfortunately sort of was diagnosed with with motor neuron disease mm-hmm. um yeah. and and then at the age of 61 i believe 61, pa- yeah. passed away which I mean he's no age um at all considering what his life had been been like previously it it all happened quite suddenly really didn't it yeah
1: I think I you know motor neuron disease is a cruel cruel wicked disease and you know in my you know my other life my political life I've done a lot of work with motor neuron disease association I run the London Marathon one year as well but it is you know there's nothing wrong with your brain and your body is just shutting down and um You know, most people who are diagnosed with it uh, die within 18 months. It's quite simply because it's got the symptoms of so many other things. They've got to rule so many other things out to actually diagnose more neuron disease. You're really at the end of the cycle of that disease once you are diagnosed. And, of course, I think the bravest thing for all Don Revy was or perceived to be, I think ultimately he was an extremely brave man. And I I think the most moving part, the toughest part of that book was that chapter on motor neuron disease. You know, I, I've met so many brave people within the Morton Neurone Disease Association. And I think if you watch the footage of the testimonial game in 1988 against the uh, Don, Legion and Don Reavy Select 11, where Paul Gascoigne played and scored. Yeah. Uh, John Robertson was there, Graham Souness, Kevin Keegan was there, Peter Shilton. And he comes out in a wheelchair. And he must have taken so much bravery for a man, who everybody remembered as the Don, the godfather, the second father, the man who dominates Ellen Road comes out he's reduced to a wheelchair and he to leave, he leaves after 20 minutes or 20 odd minutes and he says the last thing he ever said was I thought the tears would come but they didn't I held them back and I'd like to thank all the people for coming out and doing such a great job and Billy and the boys would doing such a great job for me I need to leave early and just to see that footage and see the bravery and dignity in the man as well there's a lot of dignity in the man in that footage as well it, it, even after all these years later and I never knew him and was, that's my, my that's that's the real regret I got was I never got to meet the guy and I did have a lot of admiration for him. And it was that point, I think, when I was really, I really did feel change from fascination into admiration because I think the Batley wage was was brave and powerful. And I think he did more to raise awareness for more neuron disease than anybody else. And don't forget, again, you know, I, I don't want to go on about the press, but there's a really nasty story when he was in the world where they said he got uh, one of the sheikhs he worked for in, in Dubai had paid for a miracle treatment in the Soviet Union at that time, which meant he was walking again and was cured. And it was such a cruel article, not just for the Revy family, but for all the sufferers of motor neuron disease as well, because there's still there's no cure, and they still don't know what causes it. And I think there's still a lot of work to do, but I think Don, his lasting legacy really is whenever you mention motor neuron disease, he's always mentioned about David Niven and Don Revy both had the disease. And I think um, I think that's the that good, only good thing to come out of that really.
0: There we are. Yeah. Well, see, he, he passed away 26th of May, 1989, which as, as an Arsenal supporter myself, that day resonates with me. And it, yeah. because it was the, the Arsenal-Liverpool title at Anfield on the last day of the season. And you mentioned at the beginning, there was no mention of him um, no. that day. The Arsenal players came out with flowers. They were wearing black armbands. But that was more in relation to the Hillsborough disaster that's which right. had happened uh the the April before. So that's that's surprised me a lot there. But at his funeral and, and we mentioned Kevin Keegan, um who was, who was one of the players that puts, puts really quite highly, he, he said that it saddens me that a public at large had and still have the wrong impression of him. He was kind, generous and caring. When he left the England job, he did the right thing for his family, but did it wrongly. Uh, he knew it was big enough to admit it. He'd have been as successful as Alf Ramsey with England if the players had been good enough, but we weren't. So I think it shows probably, dare I say, everything there in, in a nutshell um by keegan yeah i also i also think as well And i think you know my my
1: view at the end you know the epilogue is my personal view of don Reeve, but you know what i would say at the end of the day i grew up in the, the 90s you know i, I came age of age in the 90s when i was a teenage early you know, 20s you know i'm, I'm wearing today my main road 25th anniversary oasis oh i'm a broad jumper just for you the <laughs> <is a, laughs> <I appreciate laughs> three-lane <laughs> broadcast okay yeah but you know um you know, that, that Oasis period was so linked up to football. I mean, you know, it was coming from the pub on, on a Friday night. It was always fancy football. You had people like Jeff Astle on there, do you remember? Singing yeah. and and, and, uh, and you had Phoenix on the Flames where they'd reenact all the great... They even reacted the famous game with West Brom where Astle scored miles, off, miles offside and, and really ran on the pitch with a, a picnic blanket in his yes. arm. Bizarre. I,
0: I had to YouTube that when I read it. Yeah. I was like, what's yeah. this about?
1: It's it looks really bizarre. And he's like looking at the sky. Yeah, but again, if you notice the superstition, he looks up at the sky like, oh, you've done it in your game. You know, yeah, that's, right. that's why I always think he's almost saying to who's ever up there. You know what I mean? But what I what I would say is what he didn't have was that chance to redeem himself. And you think about, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a young kid watching football, I remember um, George Bespin on Teddy to be absolutely smashed, drunk, embarrassingly drunk, an alcoholic and I got all that. Sympathy for that, but as a young man, you know, doesn't understand these things. I couldn't understand why everybody was falling over him because he just seen me drunk all the time. he's always in the paper drunk by 1996, and it's the 60s, it's nostalgia, and it's looking back. If Oasis are the new Stones and the Beatles and the Blur and Oasis of Stones versus the Beatles, then suddenly Manchester United is best, low on charlton Best suddenly is on the alcoholic anymore. Best's a young man again, and he's always on the Television and Rodney Marsh and all these type of people and these people you've seen for a long, long time, it's finally starting to have a say. They're starting to they start to reappraise football as well because for a long time football was hated, especially in the, the Thatcher years. It was it was hated. Suddenly it becomes cool again, and the history becomes cool. And it's interestingly in the midst of that Billy Bremner dies yeah. captain of Leeds, the Mass Farnbauer days. So the leader can't redeem himself. The manager is gone. He can't redeem himself. And what happens is Reavy has not, and don't, I think, you know, by that point, by the 90s or 96, if we look at the 96 Euros, at that point, Reedy would be 68. He would have been a pundit. He would have been one of the pundits on, in Euro 96. Definitely. Yeah. Jimmy Hill and, and Terry Venner was doing, he would have been a pundit. He'd have been able to redeem himself there. And, you know, he'd have had Des Lain saying, well, no, you know, you came up with a Reedy plan. You came up with the false number nine, Don. You know, what was this all about? You know, you've had that. You've had a voice. And I think the tragedy of him, he, there was a chance for redemption in the 90s, but he wasn't around to receive that. And I think the real problem for Revy as well is it's not just the for those who don't know the Reavy story or the allegations, it's also that period where he comes to comes to prominence. Indust- you know, I think of that early century, industrial unrest, general malaise society, punk saying we've got no future. And he's all part of that. And it's not somewhere you feel warm and fuzzy about. It's not, you know love me do or you know she loves you or or penny lane or strawberry fields or or the rolling stones or or the carnaby street it's that it's not you know there's violence on on the pitch there's hooliganism on the terraces it's not you know warm and fuzzy about it and i think that's the real tragedy of of really he never really was like his point of view of how other people were you know so that's what that's really the sad thing about really yeah you know but well, he, I want to end on a high, so ask me something positive
0: about it. <laughs> well, I was going to say he is remembered fondly in statue form. is outside Ellen yeah. Road. Um, I've I've stood beside that, um, and and he'll forever be known uh, at Leeds. Even I think as you you write at the end of the book, it doesn't matter whether Leeds when they won the championship with Howard Wilkinson or under David O'Leary and Peter Risdale when they got to the Champions League semi finals. Leeds glory, yes, will will always be under Don Revie.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I mean, I, I feel you know whenever I go to Adam Road, I feel like it's a shrine to him, you know, and, and rightfully so. He built the club. I mean, the statue casts a shadow of every visit on the day, and I mean, what was interesting, I listened to uh, when they were in the playoff semi-final a couple of years ago, they lost to the derby. I listened to the radio. I was running on London. I was listening to it on the radio. And you could hear them going, there's only one Don Reavy, there's only one Don Reavy. I went up there, they were singing, there's only one Don Reavy. And marching on together, and yeah. the lead Don Reavy stand, the white shirts, and Don is everywhere there. And I think you know, it must be wonderful for the family that they want to remember him, or want to feel he's still alive. You just need to go there. And we you know, some of us lose relatives, we lose family. But there, he is still there. The spirit of Don Revy lives on and it must be, I mean, it must be wonderful for the family, I, I would imagine, you know. You know, but again, within the players as well. And it's an interesting, it's not in the book, but, it, you know, it's that interesting, it's tribute to Sir Matt Busby with Blackburn play Leeds at, at Ewood Park. They start, they start chanting, and there's only one Don Revy five years after he died. The Leeds fans still remember Don Revy and they always will. And I think, you know, that's, he is Mr. Leeds. End of. You know, and I think, I think, Keegan was right, had, you know, Reeve he'd had Bobby Moore and Jack Charlton and Bobby Charlton and and Jimmy Greaves. You know, he would be the England manager. He'd probably be talking about win the World Cup. But he didn't have the players. I mean, that's the truth. I mean, it, it's a, I think I think he's absolutely right. and Kevin Keegan probably was, and Ray Clems were probably the world class players he had. You know, Shilton probably as well, but he's a really fancy Shilton. But you know, I mean, those, you know, he didn't have the players.
0: Yeah.
1: It's difficult to think who jumps out at you in that of that team? Sonny it really, is nobody else there, you know, so that's where we are. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, it, it is a great book. Uh, it's Don Revy, the biography, by yourself, Chris Evans. It's through Bloomsbury Books. It's not the only book you've written, though, is it? No, oh, it's not. No, it's the second book I've written. So the, the
1: first one was about uh, Freddie Mills, the boxer. And I don't oh. know if you know anything about Freddie Mills, but Freddie Mills was light heavyweight champion from 1948 to 1950. Became a entrepreneur in the 50s and a big TV star and was actually the forerunner to the Kevin Keegan, George Best, uh, Henry Cooper, uh, David Beckham, as just a superstar who turned that step of that magical line between sport and fame and worldwide fame. And he presented Six Five Special, which was a forerunner, Top of the Pops, loads of variety shows, started the very first Chinese restaurant in Soho in London, really? he, the food when he was in the war. And decided to import into this country so that's the reason we've got chinese takeaways on every corner in, in town then started a nightclub um, and got involved with a, a pair of brothers known as ronnie and reggie cray ah. and um, mysteriously was found dead in the back of his car in Goslit yard um with a gunshot wound to his eye and nobody knows what happened to freddie mills but i'm not going to tell you you have to read the book by the book
0: <laughs> <laughs> well well what's what's the next book then who have you got your eye on
1: I don't I don't know. I really don't know at the moment. I mean it was a real labor. Don, I guess it was a labor of love, you know. I I, I miss I miss him. I should say I, mm-hmm. I was on my scale. my myself, my wife, I miss him. I feel I, she said he's net that sounds nuts. But I do, I, I feel like I lived two and a half years it me right to write the book and I feel like I lived with him for two and a half years. And it, there's a bit of sadness when the book was released, like I could have given him away now. You know, I can't spend any more time with you, you now, Don and sad. Yeah. But I died every single minute. The very first visit was a visit to Middlesbrough it all started for him and I think the last visit was Helen Road and it was the no actually it was Wembley was the last visit I did actually yeah. um so but it ended for him for shall we say and um I I just loved every single minute of him. and I hope whoever I do next that I I have that same effect. and in the end so when you spend that much time with someone you have a lot of affection for him and I I do feel very very protective of him so when people have a go at him. I, I want to jump up and shout. No, 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 it's not like that. You know, he was one. Of, to me, you know, and I've got to say this. You know, he was the greatest manager of all time. I'm sorry Bertie Mee and I'm sorry George Graham and Arsene Wenger and Alex Ferguson. But the reason why I say he was the greatest of all time is this: when he came to Leeds, they'd only ever won the second division in the 1930s. They had no pedigree whatsoever. They had no fans. They were obsessed by cricket and rugby league. He turned that round. He built that side from absolutely nothing. And look what he did to them. You know, he d- didn't just take them and win. It wasn't like Leicester winning the odd title year That was dominance, what he was doing, you know. And, and I just and in terms of innovation, you know, you can talk about your Fergusons, your Paisleys, your Shankly's, you know, even your Cliffs. The fact is, all the teams they turn around and turn to winners would already be winners at one point. Derby won the FA Cup in the 40s under Rache Carter. Uh, Nottingham Forest had won things. We all know about Manchester United, Liverpool, sleeping giants. We all know about, all right, you know, they go through, I say, lulls, like Manchester United goes through a lull at the moment, but you know they'll come back eventually. Arsenal are going through a lull. They were before Wenger came there, you know, when 91 to 96 was a lull for them then, but then Wenger came along and it turned it around. These clubs, those bigger clubs do have lulls, but with Leeds, they were flatlining, and he breathed life into them, and that's why I say he was the greatest manager. And the sadness about him all, I think, really is, you know, for 13 years of super success at Leeds, we, all we ever talk about... Is three years at, at England, and I'm, I'm glad you're doing the England podcast. So I just want to say, I say one thing myself off camera to you: was it is the worst job in the world. I don't think it's anybody has walked away with their reputation in tatters. So, and and I think wider I think that's why top managers don't want the job anymore. You know, it's because because of what you have to go through. And I'd be interested now when you do Ron Greenwood and do Bobby and particularly Bobby Robson. I'm looking forward to because I think what started with Reevee, probably got to a zenith with Robson in terms of the way the tabloid press were treating him so I'm really I'd be really interested I'd be really interested when you do the Robson one that's what I'm, I'm really looking forward to because I think he had more abuse than anybody in that job you know and I think I've spoken to a lot of sports journalists who said that uh, if they were stuck for a story all they'd ever do is so-and-so said Bobby Robson's crap needs to be out of the job <laughs> so so that's when yeah so I think yeah. the things that started minutely with Ramsey got worse under Reeve. Then got terrible under under Robson this this media interest in the job and their personal life so that's you know so it's, that's
0: anyway well but I'll, I'll,
1: thank I'll, you for having me on today I've thoroughly enjoyed this that chatted for hours and which probably bored some of your listeners out there but uh, I hope I hope this Welshman's done that Englishman Don review a good job anyway so to,
0: <laughs> absolutely no thank you very much you're on Twitter I believe you're at. Um, yeah at chris underscore evans mp if if people yeah. want to give you a follow there i should also say thank you to Catherine mcpherson at bloomsbury sportsbook uh, for her help on this um it is the the don Revy biography book it's it's ideal time christmas coming up great book and yeah i just want to say thank you very much for your for your time chris thank you very much i've thoroughly enjoyed it Thanks once again to Chris Evans there for his time chatting to me about Don Revy. From both the chat and the book, I've learnt a lot more about the man and perhaps my perspective of him has changed. It is a great read and it's available from Bloomsbury Books and any good bookshop. As I also mentioned, the previous episodes where we've concentrated on the two previous England managers, Sir Walter Winterbottom and Sir Alf Ramsey, are available at 3 or your podcast provider of choice. And with Revy in the bag, we now move on to Ron Greenwood. That episode, you'll be pleased to know, will be coming your way very soon. And I hope you can join me for that, and indeed, many more England-based episodes. So until then, take care of yourself. Cheers.